This morning we are continuing with our study in the book of Revelation, and we find ourselves here in the passage I just read to you, Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17, and we're looking at the letter of the resurrected Jesus to the church in the city of Pergamum. Pergamum was home to temples and shrines to four Greek gods, Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, and Asclepius. Pergamum was also the first city in Asia to receive permission to build a temple dedicated to a living ruler, according to Robert Mounts. Mounts goes on to say, in 29 BC, Augustus granted permission for a temple to be erected in Pergamum to the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma. So of all the seven cities to which Christ writes in Revelation, Mount says, Pergamum was the one in which the church was most liable to clash with the imperial cult. And all of this paganism, the four uh, temples to the Greek gods and then the, the temple to the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma, all of this paganism is why Jesus writes to the Christians in this city saying, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells, he says again at the end of verse 13. Because behind all of these pagan gods and goddesses are demonic powers, blinding the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians Four, the Christians in Pergamum were liable to experience human opposition, sure. But they ought to remember what stands behind this human opposition. As Ephesians 6.12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. With this context in mind, let's begin by looking at the specific presenting issues, or the specific presenting issue in Pergamum about which Christ writes. Jesus chastises the church, saying in verse 14, I have a few things against you. Though the church had been faithfully holding to the correct core doctrines, being faithful even unto death to the true faith of Jesus Christ, Jesus commends them. You, you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Jesus is not chastising these guys for denying, for example, the virgin birth or the bodily resurrection, or the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, or anything like this. He recognizes that they are doctrinally faithful, at least to the core teachings of Scripture. Yet, though the church had been faithfully holding to the correct core doctrines, refusing to acknowledge Caesar as Lord, and, and holding fast to the name of Jesus, there were other sorts of moral compromise in the church. Jesus says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, 
He taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. He says further, So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, some theologians, some commentators take these two criticisms as really being just two different ways of saying the same thing. But I take them as different things, and I think, I think you ought to also, because Jesus said in verse 14, I have a few things against you. Surely that implies more than one thing. And therefore, the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans can't be the same thing. Otherwise, there would really just be one criticism from Jesus stated in two different ways. And that would make it inconsistent then for Jesus to say, I have a few things against you. So I think those are two different things. What were these teachings? Well, again, as I said a few weeks ago when we considered Christ's letter to Ephesus, no one really knows for sure exactly what the teaching of the Nicolaitans was. For the purposes of this sermon, it's not, it's not really necessary to explore that and hypothesize. So we'll just move on from that. The teaching of Balaam, however, is more readily discernible. So let us take a moment and look at that. Way back in Numbers, Balaam was a man who was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse Israel. This guy was the, uh, the witch doctor, if you will. He was the shaman. He was the... the intermediary between heaven and earth of Moab. He was the seer. And Balak said he would pay Balaam a good price to come and curse the Israelites for him. So, so Balaam talked to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Yahweh said, no, don't, don't do it. He was forbidden by God to curse Israel. He ended up going with Balak, hoping maybe that somehow he might be able to get this reward. But he ended up just blessing Israel instead of cursing Israel. And so in Numbers 24, verse 11, Balak refuses to pay Balaam for his services. And understandably so, if you put, Balak in, if you put yourself in Balak's shoes, Balak is going to pay Balaam for cursing Israel. Since Balaam blesses Israel, Balak says, well, I'm not going to pay Then in Numbers 25, the very next chapter, we read this. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Interestingly, though there is no measure... No, no mention of Balaam in Numbers 25. We read in Numbers 31, verse 16, that it was on Balaam's advice, on Balaam's advice, that the women of Moab caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. So if we put two and two together, apparently Balaam wished he could curse Israel and get Balak's money. Balaam was no friend to Israel, but Yahweh overrules. And Balaam ends up blessing Israel against Balaam's wishes. 
And because Balak refuses to pay, Balaam is quite frustrated and wants to figure out some way to get this reward that he had been promised but which had slipped through his fingers. And so he devises a way to harm Israel and get the reward that Balak had originally promised to him. Balaam devised a workaround plan to harm Israel and collect his reward. He advised the Moabites to lure the Israelite men into syncretism through, by means of, sexual immorality. Thus, it seems that as the Israelites of old were led into syncretism by pagan women, and as King Solomon, many years later, was led into syncretism by pagan women, so some of the men in Pergamon were being led into syncretism by pagan women. Perhaps there were those in the church who condoned what some call evangelating. <laughs> you laugh, but it's a serious problem. <laughs> dating, dating unbelievers, dating unbelievers with the ostensible purpose of witnessing to them. Well, who knows? Maybe the Lord will use me to bring her to faith. Maybe the Lord will use me to bring him to faith. Maybe the Lord has raised me up for just such a time as this. Right? Perhaps there were those in the church in Pergamum who believed that it wasn't important so much what your girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse believed, so long as you remain faithful to Jesus. Perhaps there was outright excusing of the indulgence of the flesh on the pretense that as long as you hold fast doctrinally to the core teachings of the faith, you're okay. And whether that comes from maybe a, a platonic atmosphere where you think that the only thing that really matters is the spirit and not so much what you do with the body, or whether that comes from just plain old antinomianism, where you just don't worry so much about the ethics of Christianity as long as you got the doctrine right, whether that, whether that uh, comes from sort of a, a, a free grace kind of mentality where you can just go on sinning and grace will just increase and in fact it will magnify God's grace all the more because we're just a lot of messed up and broken people, aren't we? And of course we're going to do things like this and it's no big deal. And that's what Jesus came for anyway, was to save us from our sins. And so, I mean, you can't blame the guy or the gal in the pew be behind you or in front of you for these things. Because, I mean, well, who could expect any different? Jesus, this saying is trustworthy. Jesus came to save sinners, of whom we are the foremost. So, I mean, yeah, obviously these things are going to happen in the church. Whatever, whatever specifically was happening and what the rationale was for it or whatever, we don't really know. But the end result of whatever specific rationalization was happening in Pergamum was that some in Pergamum were embracing sexual immorality and participation in pagan worship and that these two sins were linked somehow, just as they were in the days of Balaam. This is specifically what seems to have been going on in Pergamum, at least with respect to the teaching of Balaam. 
can't comment with any certainty on the teaching of the Nicolaitans, because we just don't know. In view of this, then, there are especially two ways in which we must learn from Christ's letter to Pergamum in our day and age. The first way that we need to learn from Christ's letter to Pergamum, all right, here it is, you, you know it, is that we ought not to evangelate. We ought not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship, pardon me, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14. This is not hard to understand. You cannot build a God-honoring dating relationship or a God-honoring married life together with someone who is ultimately devoted to someone else or something else other than God. It's not rocket science. But it's hard to accept because if you're in that situation and you have all the feels, as they say, it's hard to say no to the Moabite women or the Moabite men for you ladies, right? When there is an attractive young Moabite prepared to commit sexual immorality with you. Uh, look, I'm gonna pull a pole washer here and say stop laughing, stop talking about you. <laughs> This really, this really is no laughing matter because this is a very serious temptation that we all face, isn't it? When there is an attractive young Moabite prepared to commit sexual immorality with you, if you only compromise your allegiance to God, it is morally difficult to say no, even though it is not intellectually hard to understand that you shouldn't. This is the trap that Balaam set for the Israelites so long ago. And behind Balaam was not flesh and blood, but the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as Ephesians 6.12 puts it. In other words, it was Satan and the demonic horde who set the trap for the Israelites so long ago through, by means of, Balaam. It was Satan who trapped Solomon many years later through his pagan wives. It is Satan who was trapping the Christians in Pergamum through the pagan men and women of that city and the sexual immorality with which they tempted the Christians in that place at that time. And it is Satan who seeks to trap you. Whether you're not yet married, whether you're married, the temptation is there. And we have seen enough Christian men and women commit adultery and sexual immorality of all manner and all different sorts to realize this is a live issue. 
It is Satan who seeks to trap you through pagan boyfriends and girlfriends, through pagan spouses, through pagan mistresses, side chicks, etc. Indulging in such sexual immorality is not okay. It's not understandable. It's not no big deal. The church in Pergamon seems to take the approach that it was understandable and no big deal. But it wasn't. And Jesus makes it clear to them in this letter, and I want to make it very clear to you today. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about if you're married to someone already who's an unbeliever. Obviously, being intimate with that person is good and, and right in the eyes of God. It says that the unbelieving spouse is made holy by the believer, right? That this is, um, as, as God instructs in the New Testament scriptures, if he or she is willing to live with you, then you should remain in that marriage and participate fully in that marriage. What I'm talking about is what Solomon did by taking to himself consciously unbelieving spouses, though he was a believer in Yahweh and they were not. The singles in this church need to hear loud and clear, don't do that. It's a scheme of Satan that he's used over and over again to draw God's people away from undivided devotion to him into syncretism and compromise. It's not no big deal, even if, even if he or she is a really nice person. The second way that we need to learn from Christ's letter to Pergamon, to Pergamon is that syncretism is not okay. What if you avoid sexual immorality but you still mix the worship of God with the worship of false gods. Then does the letter to Pergamon not really indict you, since what was going on in Pergamon was syncretism through sexual immorality? What if you don't partake in the sexual immorality, but just merely indulge in the syncretism which resulted from sexual immorality in that case? Is it okay to mix the worship of the true God with the worship of false gods? Well, of course not. So, the sexual immorality is just one way. One fishing lure, if I can put it that way, that Satan uses to bait Christians into syncretism with. But even if he doesn't get you that way, he would be happy to just change the lure on the end of his line and get you some other way into syncretism. So what are the idols of our current contemporary culture? Baal of Peor? No. Alright. Paul Washer again, don't laugh, I'm talking about you. Super Bowl Sunday. Right? And our beloved, homegrown national hero, Rihanna, is performing 
is performing at halftime, right? How about setting aside Sundays for NFL football? Could that be a cultural item? Soldier Field in Chicago is the smallest of NFL stadiums at a capacity of 61,500 seats. You know of a church that big? And there are 30 stadiums in the NFL, each of which is at or near capacity when the home team is playing. Add television broadcast to those numbers and you have a compelling indictment that North American society is one for which Sunday is not the Lord's Day, but the League's Day. Should Christians set aside part of the Lord's Day for, or sorry, set aside part of the day as the Lord's and set, set aside part of the day as the League's? That was a tongue twister. Let me try that again. Should Christians set aside part of the day as the Lord's and part of the day as the League's? And attempt to do both. And aside from the Sunday issue and how we ought to spend our Lord's days, consider more broadly how large a role both, both the NFL and other professional sports whether Premier League football, whether cricket, whether basketball, whatever. Consider what a large role these things play in so many people's lives all seven days of the week. Should we be numbered among those for whom sports is the most important thing happening any given Sunday? or any other day of the week, for that matter? Should we be numbered among those who have time to sit down and watch men play with a little piece of plastic or leather or whatever the case may be for three hours but can't manage to get ourselves to prayer meeting or to get ourselves to the evening service? Right? Consider how much time, just in terms of hours, people spend on sports relative to church or other potential contemporary idols, not to just pick on the sports fans. What about other forms of entertainment? Appearance related to that, fitness and health, money, career, self-autonomy, Related to that, self-actualization, comfort, family. Should we be numbered among those for whom these sorts of things are ultimate and command godlike allegiance in our lives? You realize, you realize that probably almost everyone around you is living for one of the things I just mentioned. You realize that? I mean, that's not an exhaustive list, but that hits some big ones. Almost everybody around you who is an unbeliever is living for one of those things. Family is ultimate. Money is ultimate. Career is ultimate. Comfort is ultimate. 
being entertained and not being bored is ultimate. Fitness, health, appearance is ultimate. Self-autonomy is ultimate. Self-actualization is ultimate. You realize most people are living for these things. And they think it's strange when you don't participate with them in the same flood of debauchery. Is it okay for us to functionally live our lives for these things, as if these things are ultimate, so long as we hold the core doctrines of the faith? So if someone would put a gun to our head and say, Antipas, will you be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ? And we would say, well, yes, in that situation, we'd take a bullet to the head. But seven days a week, in the meantime, until I get there, I'm really going to live for family. Or I'm really going to live for career. Or I'm really going to live for fitness and the prolonging of biological life or whatever, right? This is syncretism, even if it's syncretism that we arrive at not through sexual immorality. When we start to imbibe and participate in the idolatry of the unbelieving world around us, we are guilty of syncretism, even if we haven't gotten there by means of Moabite women. Now, I'm not necessarily saying, don't go to the gym. You know what? Forget, forget the idol of fitness. You know what? Eat your potato chips. Eat your cake. Never mind your, your weightlifting. Never mind running. You know, bodily exercise profits only a little, but spiritual. I'm not saying that, right? Take care of your body. Be a good steward. I'm not saying don't try to improve your financial situation. Right? Work hard that you might have something to share with him in need. Right? I'm not saying don't work hard at your job. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. I'm not even saying don't watch NFL football. There are Monday night and Thursday night games too, you know. Right? But I am saying, and mark this loud and clear, I am saying that we are not beyond the danger of syncretism in our day and age. Just because we're not going to be tempted to worship Baal of Peel. I am saying that we do have temples and shrines to false gods all around us. Literally and figuratively or metaphorically. We need to be careful to steer clear of syncretism generally. We ought to be warned against that by reading this letter to the Christians at Pergamon. Even as at the same time, we also obviously need to steer clear of that particular version of syncretism which was happening in Pergamon, which is syncretism arrived at by means of sexual immorality. So with the dangers of syncretism and warning against it fresh in our minds, whether it be the sexual immorality-related variety or not. Let's consider now some relevant encouragements and warnings from Jesus. As Jesus presented himself in the beginning of Revelation 2 to the church at Ephesus as the concerned gardener who walks among the churches, 
ready to prune where necessary. And as he threatens the church at Ephesus with removal from his garden, so to speak. As Jesus presented himself, as we saw last week, to the church at Smyrna, as the one who died and came to life, as he encourages them to be faithful to death, as Jesus presents himself to each of the churches in these seven letters, from a particular angle, or in a particular light, which is well suited to their situation, and what he has to say to them specifically, so he does here with this church at Pergamon. He describes himself in verse 12 as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, notice that he doesn't say that he is him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Because that would put him and the empire on an equal plane. The empire has a sharp two-edged sword, and so does Jesus. Now, Jesus says, I am him who has the sharp two-edged sword. In other words, the only one. The only sharp two-edged sword that you need to worry about is in my head. This reminds the Pergamum Christians that though the Roman Empire does bear the sword in some sense and may in fact martyr some of them as it did Antipas, the faithful witness, it is Jesus who they really ought to fear. It is much worse to have Jesus come and war against you as he says that he will do in verse 16 if they don't repent. It is much worse to have Jesus come and war against you than to merely have the Roman Empire upset with you. Caesar, don't worry about him. I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword. And I'm going to come war against you if you don't repent. That's what Jesus is saying here in this passage. Much better to be uncompromisingly committed to Jesus and at odds with the empire than it is to be compromising with the empire and at odds with Jesus. So there's a threat here. What would people think of you if you didn't chase money and career success the way that they think you should? What would people think of you if you said no to a family gathering on a Sunday afternoon or evening because it would interfere with your keeping of the Lord's Day? What would people think if like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, you decided simply not to bow down to cultural idols? And it was just this awkward moment when the music stopped playing and everyone but you was prostrate on the ground, and there you are, like, not, not bound into that. I don't live for that. That's not my God. What if you said, like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? Or what if, like Gideon, you actually went and pulled down the altars of Baal 
in the astral homes of the people around you. And start to say, not only am I not going to worship that God, but you ought not to either. And what if you started saying, look, if you profess faith in Christ, then you really should repent of worshiping Baal of Peor. You really should repent of worshiping Asherah. Could you withstand the displeasure and the disapproval and even possibly the fury and the persecution of men? You could if you saw Jesus' sword as a more serious threat. But Jesus doesn't only threaten in this passage. Jesus also encourages and incentivizes pure devotion and worship. He says, I know where you live. And this, typically we take this as a threat, right? You, you borrow money from someone and the time comes to repay and you say, wow, give me a couple more days. I say, look, pay up. I know where you live. We take that as a threat. Right? But in this context, Jesus is, is not threatening. In this context, Jesus is actually reassuring. He's saying, I know, uh, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. He's expressing a certain measure of empathy with our struggles against the syncretism and the paganism around us. He knows firsthand the deceitful promises of the fleeting pleasures of sin. As one who, as Hebrews 4 and verse 15 says, in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus knows that it is difficult. He tells us that in this passage. He says, therefore, in, in view of the fact that it's difficult, in Romans, or pardon me, in Revelation 2 and verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Some theologians take this as a promise that Christ will nourish us as we conquer. In the midst of our battle against the paganism and the syncretism around us, it will look to the world like we're not being fed, but Jesus will be feeding us with hidden manna all the while. Some theologians and commentators take it that way. It's a very encouraging thought. I don't deny that it's theologically true, that the Lord will be nourishing us as we fight against paganism and syncretism, but I don't think that this particular verse is one that we would turn to to make that theological point. The grammar of the sentence implies that it is after we conquer that we receive the hidden manna. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. So I believe that the better way to take it is that Jesus will make it worth our while if we conquer our lusts and refuse to taste of the illicit pleasures of syncretism, the forbidden fruit. If we say, no, get that forbidden fruit away from me. I don't want it. 
if instead of listening to the serpent, we grab a stick and start swinging at its head? Get out of here. Be gone, Satan. If we say, I will not taste of this illicit pleasure, Jesus will give us something better to taste in the end. Some of the hidden manna. The hidden manna, whatever it is, is better. Whether it's intended to signify a profound communion with Christ, who, as John 6 tells us, is the true bread from heaven, the true manna, whether this is intended then to signify that we will have in heaven, once we have conquered, a profound communion with Christ, the true bread of heaven, which proves to be far better than the forbidden fruit. Or whether this is a metaphorical reference to tasting the manna which was hidden away in the Ark of the Covenant. Metaphorically indicating our eventual admission into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark was kept. That one day we will come into God's full, unrestricted presence. There will be no veil, no curtain between us. Though we have access now, we recognize God is in heaven and we are on earth. And though He's here with us by His Spirit, He has not left us as orphans, He's come to us. Nevertheless, there is something which is lacking now in terms of our immediate communion with God and the enjoyment of His immediate presence. And perhaps that the Lord will let us taste of some of the manna. Maybe this means that we'll come into the Holy of Holies and open the cover of the Ark of the Covenant and be granted to taste some of the manna that's there. We will be in the Holy of Holies in the full, unfettered, unlimited presence of God. And that that experience will be sweeter than any forbidden fruit we can taste here and now. Whatever the hidden manna is intended to communicate, the function of it here in this passage, the theological message of the picture that we're going to be given hidden manna to taste. The theological message is that it's going to taste better than the forbidden fruit. So don't impatiently, when you're on your way home and kind of hungry, don't impatiently settle for a hamburger at Chefette when you have a nicely, perfectly cooked steak waiting for you at home. Don't taste of something lesser now when just a little while and Jesus will give you something far better. That's the theological function of the hidden manna in this passage. The wait will be worth it. Jesus tells us that not only is it good and right to conquer, but also that it is worthwhile to conquer. Furthermore, Jesus tells us also in verse 17 that to the one who conquers, he will give a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. One commentator says, there are perhaps a dozen or more plausible interpretations of the white stone. So in view of that, it's unlikely that we will 
resolve conclusively the debate about it this morning. But I'll tell you what makes the most sense to me. According to Robert Mounts, white stones were given to the victor at games and to gladiators who had won the admiration of the public and had been allowed to retire from further combat. John Gill corroborates this historic practice, saying, White stones were also given to the conquerors in the Olympic Games with their names upon them. Humbly, with a dozen or more plausible interpretations out there, I submit to you that it is most likely that Jesus is drawing on this conquering and warring imagery which runs throughout his letter to Pergamum. And he uses the common practice of giving white stones to conquering gladiators and Olympic combatants. Those who fight in pancreation. That original MMA. When they won, they would be given a white stone with their name on it. When the gladiators won, they would be given a white stone and allowed to retire from combat. Given the sword imagery and the conquering imagery and Jesus' threat to come and war against them, I think that of the dozen or more plausible interpretations, this one fits the best. That Jesus is saying, when the final round ends and the bell rings, if you're still standing, you will be given a white stone. When all of the other opponents have fallen and you are standing there with a bloody sword in hand, you will be given a white stone. And the fight against paganism and syncretism and the temptations and the allures of this deceitful world which promises pleasure, but you give in and you find that it tastes good for a second and then is vile and putrid in the mouth of the regenerate person. You're battling against this temporary, hollow, fleeting pleasure will be over. And you won't have to keep fighting and fighting for eternity. Your fight will one day be over and you will be given a white stone signifying victory and you will be allowed to retire from combat. This giving of the white stone is therefore, in my opinion, a promise of eventual rest from combat and the approbation of Christ himself who will recognize us symbolically with the white stone, meaning, well done good and faithful servant. So in summary, Christ warns the Christians in Pergamum that his sword is to be feared more than the sword of the Roman Empire. He warns that holding the right core doctrines is not enough. Even if you're prepared to take a bullet to the head, so to speak, for the right core doctrines, you need to make sure that your life is not a life of syncretism, but a life of pure devotion to Christ. Mixing a little pagan practice in, and in 
the case of the Christians in Pergamum, mixing in a little bit of sexual immorality that was part and parcel of that syncretism. It's not okay. Christ wars against Christians who try to live like that. To those who will take up this fight against the lusts of the flesh, Jesus will give something that tastes better. Jesus will recognize us in the end as conquering, victorious gladiators. And we will one day be able to rest from the fight. Surely these threatenings and these incentives give us occasion, ought to give us occasion to soberly examine our own lives and see if we are mixing a little bit of cultural idolatry with the worship of God. May he help us to purify ourselves as he is pure. And in the language of this passage, repent.